Hello everyone, it's Paul Burge here with another episode of the When in Spain podcast. Thank you so much for joining me for our regular outing through Spain, Spanish life and its culture. This week we're talking about living off grid in Spain, self-sufficiency, so growing our own fruit, veg, olives, wine, that kind of thing. And we'll also be talking about the lesser known region of Spain, Extremadura. And to talk all about this, I'm delighted to invite onto the podcast British author and journalist Paul Richardson. Uh, now, Paul wrote a book called A Late Dinner, Discovering the Food of Spain, which some of you may know. I think it's a wonderfully vivid foodie travelogue, looking at the different foods in each region, talking about the history and culture of each region of Spain as well. Now, I savoured every page of this book, uh, pun intended, and in fact, I featured it on the When in Spain reading list, 16 must-read books about Spain, um, which was a podcast episode from last May, actually, almost exactly a year ago. So if you're interested in uh, finding out a bit more about Paul's book, head back to that episode from last year, the When in Spain reading list. Give it a listen. And well, not only that, I highly recommend getting hold of a copy of Paul's book, A Late Dinner, as well. If you're interested in Spain uh, and its culture and interested in food, it's the perfect perfect combination. It's a great escapism reading at this time when we can't really travel. Anyway, in this episode, we're not going to be talking about Paul's book, although we will, of course, be talking about Spanish food. Paul's actually going to be sharing with us in this episode his experience of becoming self-sufficient uh, where he lives on his farm called El Chabolino, which is up in northern Extremadura, about 30 kilometers from the Portuguese border. We were very lucky to have a couple who had their farm next door who were kind of, I think they're some of the last true country people, I mean, of the old kind. I mean, he is a, is an amazing kind of blacksmith and he has goats and the wife makes the cheese. And I mean, together, the amount of knowledge they have is quite sensational. He'll also be painting a picture of Spain's so-called forgotten region as well. I think what makes it unique is the sense of scale that you feel as you drive from one end of Extremadura to the other. It's frontier country, sort of on the verge in every sense. It feels out on a limb. You have to remember this was also where many of the conquistadores came from that risked their lives to cross the ocean and into the unknown. Pizarro, the discoverer of Peru, was from Trujillo, a beautiful historic town. And of course, he'll be bringing us a flavour of Extremenian cuisine as well. Don't come looking for fancy food. Fried breadcrumbs with fried up in a big pan with garlic and pancetta, panceta, sometimes red peppers. Simple things that are just extremely tasty. The other thing to mention, it's very important, is um, pimenton, which is produced here, the best pimenton in the world.
So that's all coming up in the hour ahead. So stay tuned to be transported to rural Extremadura because that's what we like doing at the moment on this podcast is taking you uh, to Spain through the power of audio and your imagination, of course, uh, transporting you around Spain, trying to help paint a picture and to bring you to this beautiful country, which you guys can't travel to at the moment. And uh, for those of us who live here in Spain, we can't travel around either. So that's all coming up. Um, but before that, it's that part of the show when I like to say a big thank you to New When in Spain patrons. So here's a special patron shout out to two New When in Spain patrons, James Amantorp and Ronald Vine. Thanks to you guys for signing up to become New When in Spain patrons and support the podcast. And also a big, big gracias to Matt Ham and Michael Clishin, existing When in Spain patrons who have very kindly decided to increase their monthly pledges as well. So a really, really big thank you to James, Ronald, Matt and Michael. I really appreciate your support, um, especially at this difficult time. And while I'm on the subject, a message to When in Spain patrons. Uh, do keep your eyes out for lots more new bonus When in Spain content. Um, I haven't been able to produce as much as I had hoped and I've been able to produce even less during this lockdown quarantine situation. Yesterday uh, we were allowed outside for the first time in about 50 days, around seven weeks, to walk within one kilometer of our apartment and what a treat, what a joy, amazing just to get out and walk around, uh, do a bit of exercise, see some of the city that we haven't seen really for months and many of you may have seen a couple of videos that I posted in the Facebook group and for patrons a special uh, longer video for patrons as well uh, just giving you a little flavor through the video of what Madrid is looking like uh, at the moment kind of eerie still still very quiet even though that we're allowed to go out for a walk uh, everything is still closed of course but anyway my plan is to bring you regular videos now of uh, Madrid uh, while I can while I can go out uh, if you're not a patron then you can easily become one and uh, that's just a case of heading across to patreon.com forward slash when in Spain. It's P-A-T-R-E-O-N forward slash when in Spain. You can sign up there. Um, I think the minimum tier to sign up for a monthly pledge is $3 per month, but you can uh, adjust that down to $1 a month if you want. So basically from as little as $1 a month, you'd be supporting this podcast, the time that I invest in putting it together and bringing it to you as well. If you sign up at one of the higher tiers, uh, you'll get access to this bonus content that I've been talking talking about. So let's get into the good stuff. Let's get to the interview with author and journalist Paul Richardson. Paul's originally from the UK, from the county of Hampshire in the south, not far from where I'm from, actually. And after spending many years living in rural Ibiza, Paul swapped all of that to set up his farm El Chabalino with his husband. So let's hear all about their rural adventure, living off grid and how they produce almost everything they consume, even soap. And uh, later in the episode, we'll also be looking at what the the region of Extremadura has to offer. Paul, thanks so much for taking the time to join the When in Spain podcast today. Thank you. Thanks very much. Nice to be with you. 
Uh, if only virtually, of course. If only virtually, yes. Well, everything's virtual at the moment. So how are you doing in this current situation of lockdown? I'm, I'm speaking to you from Madrid. Madrid is like a ghost town. It's kind of strange, but I'm kind of envious of you, really, because you have 12 acres to roam around in at your yes, farm. It's very odd. I mean, um, I'm kind of envious of myself in a way. It's just, um, <laughs> uh, it's, um, it's a bit surreal because life has not really changed very much at all for me, apart from the fact that this, we don't get visitors which is actually quite a blessing in some ways because it means we can get on with stuff um, around the finca life has not changed really at all and we've got plenty of as we'll we'll discuss i think we have plenty of food and we have we're pretty much self-sufficient so the occasional trip to the village is about it but otherwise we're kind of you know we're, we're sitting pretty really yeah, it's a good time to uh, be living remotely and self-sufficiently, I guess. It does suddenly feel that the whole thing makes sense. There are certainly, you know, there, there have been times over the last 20 years when, you know, one has wondered what on earth it was all for. And it's, of course, it's now when you realise that this was what perhaps unconsciously you were <laughs> preparing for. Give us a kind of brief introduction to you, how you came to be living in Spain, because you're living in Extremadura at the moment, but that's not the only place you've lived in Spain. Well, it was all kind of so long ago that I can barely remember, but it was the late 80s. I was living in London and there was a bit of a recession, but it was a kind of mini recession and people were losing their jobs. And I was working on the Evening Standard in London. Um, I'm a journalist as well as author. I just took off in about 1989, 90, I still can't remember the exact year, went down to Ibiza in my little brown mini, drove all the way there. And that was sort of the start of my whole um, adventure in Spain. I moved in with a, with a, my partner at the time, who I'm still together with. In fact, he's my husband, Spanish uh, guy called Nacho. And um, we lived in a one of those whitewashed houses that now cost two million euros. But then you could rent for not very much. And we were very happy there in Ibiza for 10 years. I was writing still. Um, I wrote several books from there. So that was 10 years of that episode, took me to 2000. And then we made the move to the mainland. I just was looking for wider horizons in every sense. And of course, the, the tourism in Ibiza was driving me mad. Yeah, I guess uh, around that time, it was ratcheting up really with these sort of party goers, the late 80s, early 90s. Well, it was a fun time. The 90s was still hard to believe, but it was still not very well known. I mean, people had sort of heard of it, but it wasn't like this mega international brand, you know, that it's become. And it wasn't for wealthy business people. Um, It was for people like us, you know, slightly kind of off the wall um, alternative types and um, hippies and and dreamers. And so we, we rented our big, beautiful whitewashed house for the equivalent of I think it was 300 euros a month wow (laughs) Uh, you know it was another world in many ways anyway so but it became unbearable although I really loved the Mediterranean I still do and miss it couldn't stand that whole club scene and the whole the tourism boom which was really kind of ruining the island so we decided to move to the mainland and we were getting into growing our own vegetables and we had animals we had goats and in a small way we were kind of I suppose embarking on our self-sufficiency project but we needed to take it further and so we needed more water for um, crops and so on 
and we needed some proper land. So we started investigating and, and eventually stumbled on Extremadura and, and the rest is history. And the rest is history, as they say. So northern Extremadura, and now you have a 12-acre farm or small holding called El Chabolino, which is Spanish for little shack, is that right? Yeah, that's right. Well, it's a particularly kind of local expression. You know how in Spain the kind of the diminutives, you can almost map them out, you know, where they use ito or ico. Yes. And ino is, is used not, I think it's not only in Extremadura, but it's very characteristic of, of Extremadura. So it would be chabolo or, or chabola, would be a kind of shack, and then the, um, adding the diminutive makes it chabolino. So that's what, uh, that's what our farm is called. I love the Spanish language and especially these little idiosyncrasies like that, the Eno and Ito. Because I think in La, La Mancha, I have friends uh, from near the Albacete area and they use the Ico and Ica uh, yes. instead. Yes, uh, Yeah, so instead of saying un besito, they say un, un besico, which I, I, I love, I love it, I love it. <laughs> So, El Chabolino, can you kind of paint a mental image of it for us and, and also put it on the map, sort of more or less where it is? You're quite close to yeah. the, the Portuguese border, in fact. About half an hour from the border. In fact, um, we kind of fell upon this area when we were crossing from Lisbon by car. And uh, it was sort of almost the first thing we saw as we crossed on a dark and stormy winter night. Like all of uh, the north northern part of Extremadura, it's quite surprisingly hilly and lush and it rains quite a lot although less uh, as the years go by there's less and less rainfall of course but it's still surprisingly forested and it's quite a lot of water there's sort of rivers and, and so on we have had the great sort of awful event of the last few years here um has been a forest fire caused an enormous amount of damage and has meant for me that there's been a sort of before and after. I mean, it's still, I think, still lovely, but it's very it's different. The fire burnt huge swathes of forest, and this was in 2015. It's now recovering. It was such a tragedy and uh, has really altered the, the look of the place. Yeah, I remember that because I have some friends up in Vigo and I think around 2015 we drove up to visit them and uh, we did a little excursion down into northern Portugal. So yeah, I mean, uh, northwestern Spain was really badly affected with uh, wildfires a couple of years ago. Yeah, I remember that. But we're making big efforts to reforest and to kind of bring it back to something approaching what it was like. It was a chestnut growing area, so there were forests but they'd been abandoned and so they were still trees were still growing but they weren't in a good way and it meant that the fire was it was fuel for the fire essentially that forest was was more or less destroyed so what what it's meant is that we've been able to start from scratch and, and plant um resistant uh, disease resistant varieties of chestnut and we've replanted with with um indigenous um kinds of oak and so we're kind of we you know we're working really hard to to bring bring the place back to life and I think we're we're going to succeed this year. It's raining. It's been raining raining heavily for the whole of the month of April. Uh, mm -hmm. For the first time for several years, we really feel we've kind of the, the water table has has mm -hmm. risen, and things are looking pretty fabulous. You know, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful spring. Really, it's lovely. So you live completely off grid. And this is what I was really interested in. When we say off-grid, just for those listeners who may not know exactly what that means, what, what does it mean living off-grid? 
Well, I always assume that it means living outside the energy supply system yeah. so that you you have your own sources of energy. I think that's the strict definition. In that sense, yes, we are um, off-grid. We have solar panels and batteries. And nowadays, of course, the technology is pretty fantastic and relatively affordable so that if you have led light bulbs and you keep have very high efficient fridges and so on you can keep your energy use pretty low it works it works really well our heating is powered by an old-fashioned range rather like an arga which is wood fired and that heats radiators um, and also provides hot water that's our main the main way in which i think we can be said to be um, self-sufficient did you have to do a lot of research? Yeah, it's not something that's not an addi- a decision you can make, I think, on the spur of the moment. It's, I mean, of course, it depends on what level you want to, to get onto, you know, because yeah. plenty of people have a few hens and a few tomato plants and that, I mean, that's fine. But it, and then I think you can, I always say it's the hobby that got kind of out of control in my, my case. <laughs> Talking to neighbours, being very um, in touch with locals who can actually tell you how things are done. If you're lucky enough to be in a place where there are people still around who can tell you those things. We were very lucky to have a couple who had their farm next door who were kind of, I think they're some of the last true country people. I mean, of the old kind. I mean, he is a is an amazing blacksmith and makes his own tools and repairs shoes. And he has goats and the wife makes the cheese. And I mean, together, the amount of knowledge they have is quite sensational. Better than any book because, you know, they can actually show you how it's done. That's one of the most important things. There's masses of stuff online. Uh, but even then, you make mistakes. The rewards are so well worth it. Did any of your friends or family or the locals where you live kind of think you were crazy trying to do this? How did they react? I often think, you know, if people don't think you're crazy when you start some project, then you're probably doing the wrong, probably doing something wrong. But I think the locals kind of got it because they, because we were so kind of keen to do what they were doing. And I think they felt that's the nice thing about um, uh, living in somewhere like, um, Spain that I think it should go both ways I mean you know you learn from people and they should also learn can learn from you why not I think especially the elderly locals have really appreciated that what we're trying to do is is adopt certain traditional customs you know like the Matanza which we do every year and fewer and fewer people um, actually get around to doing it now because it's you know it's not yeah. something that's easy to do a lot of advice particularly from sort of older villagers who remember how it how it was done La Matanza is the slaughter of the pig, um, for anyone you might not know, right? That's right, yeah. It's just the, the, the uh, annual feast. It's an enormous amount of work and it's quite um, a complicated procedure. But it used to be very much more common than it is now. It was the time where you would produce most of the meat for the rest of the year, plus all the chorizos, the salchichones, the hams, great universe of Spanish charcuterie. And it's also huge fun uh, once you know what you're doing, of course. A kind of intense burst of work because you have to do everything there and then really once you've slaughtered the pig, that's it. Almost everything you eat <laughs> is produced on your farm, right? Not everything, but almost everything. I mean, I, I was reading that you, you produce your own olive oil and uh, obviously meat from your pigs. You even make your own soap, is that right? From the fat from the pigs that you rear. 
That's right. Well, so can be made slightly counterintuitively, I always think, from from Greece, from any Greece, particularly things like uh, rancid oil or olive oil and pork fat. And it's not nearly as difficult as you'd think, actually. I've discovered that with a lot of these things that um, people used to do these things, in, even in the UK, you know, not all that long ago. People made their own soap. Maybe we'll see a return to all these traditional craft. But yeah, we have all our own vegetables, um, all our own fruit. We have not only pork meat, but we also have lamb, so we keep sheep. We have rabbits as well for meat. So, of course, we're missing beef, but we have kind of barter arrangements with beef farmer near here. He's a friend of ours. We make our own bread. We grow rye, so we, we harvest that every, every year. So we're quite used to looking around the table and realising that everything we're eating is, has been produced here. That sounds amazing. Um, no vineyard. You're not producing your own wine. Not yet. Yeah. <laughs> I forgot that, mainly because it's not something that I'm particularly proud of. It's the, it's the kind of thorn in my side. I have made wine for the last 20 years, but it's, it is really the most difficult of any of the things I try and do. The wine tradition in Extremadura, is, in this part of Extremadura, is not very well established. Um, they make something called vino de pitarra, which is a very rustic, very oxidised, strong. It's, it's not a modern wine, um, but it's still quite popular in bars and so on. When we bought the place, there was a vineyard here, very old vines. That was definitely a, a steep learning curve, winemaking, and every year that goes by, Things can go wrong and usually do. I was going to say it must be at the beginning. I mean, obviously now you have years of uh, experience and expertise under your belt. But I imagine at the, minute, at the beginning, it's, it must be quite a daunting thing to be faced with, you know, olive groves and how do you cultivate them and how do you harvest them and growing wine and, and rearing animals and all of these things. I imagine it must be pretty overwhelming at the beginning and a very steep learning curve. Did you have any crazy things happen, amusing problems that cropped up uh, during the learning process? <laughs> There's always the, the story of the pig that gets up after having been dispatched and starts running around. You know, that sort of nightmare that you will pray you pray will never happen, but actually did happen once. <laughs> I was going to tell you about our distilling, which we also do. I think it's illegal, but as often happens in Spain, things are kind of negotiable. Um, but anyway, we borrow this copper still from a neighbour and we began distilling the the skins left over from the from the wine harvest yeah. to make our own hooch or rujo or aguardiente I think it's called uh, around here and that has been quite fun but you have to remember not to use the first alcohol that drips out because it's that's got methyl alcohol which is turns you blind essentially first year we tried it well I think we, we didn't know about this uh, detail so that we got the, some of the worst headaches I've ever had in my life um, from that <laughs> first batch. Anyway, it's all good fun. <laughs> I thought you were going to say that the still exploded or something. <laughs> <laughs> there was another year when it came out blue for some reason, it looked just like methylated spirits. Oh my god! I'm intrigued about uh, the olives. Is that is that something that's quite easy to do? Cultivate and harvest olives. Um, I imagine it's quite a big job when it comes to harvest. Yeah. It is a big job, but the, the great thing about olives is that you cannot make oil at home. 
That's one thing you just cannot do. You have to take the olives to an almafara, an olive mill. And people think it's all very rustic and picturesque. But in fact, these mills are now very high tech and you won't find anyone milling on a stone a stone mill. It's all centrifuges and, you know, this Italian uh, machinery. And they'll do it for you. So essentially the, the work involved is uh, taking care of the trees, pruning, fertilizing the keeping that under control and picking and the picking is is a it's pretty hard work that involves laying mats underneath the trees and either whacking them with sticks or actually picking them by hand which is what we do very painstaking do you recruit some of the locals to help you with that yeah we try and work with local people um kids young people who need the work yeah we have um, on many occasions, we have used local labour. It does tend to make the oil more expensive. So we try and do most of it ourselves. I was going to ask you, actually, if you have a surplus of produce that you, you sell it to the local community. Is that right? Yeah, we barter. We don't have um, the quantity, really, to sell commercially, either in Spain or anywhere else. But we do. There's one exception to that. We act as sort of dealers for um, a local variety of lemon called the uh, moon lemon, Limon de Luna. Which is a very, very high quality type of lemon that it's called moon lemon because it flowers once a month, unlike most uh, lemon varieties, which are, I think, twice a year. And it's a kind of rustic, old heritage variety that we sell in the UK through a company called Brindiza, who are a distribution company for Spanish products and they also have restaurants and tapas bars and so that's something we do we also sell our own produce but we we buy lemons from growers in the village and in other nearby villages and send them on to to london where they're very much appreciated i haven't heard of that variety before You're listening to When in Spain. We're talking Extremadura with author and journalist Paul Richardson. Stay tuned as we explore Extremenian food and uncover some beautiful places to visit in Spain's forgotten region. You're listening to When in Spain. Let's talk about Extremadura. Uh, which is obviously the region yeah. where you live, and you're in the the northern part of Extremadura. For listeners who may not be familiar, um, it's the region of Spain which borders Portugal. And I don't know. I've 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 been guilty of saying this, and I've heard other people saying it, and maybe it's a bit of a cliche. I don't know. Um, describing Extremadura as a bit of this sort of forgotten region of Spain, the part of Spain that people overlook. Do you think that's true? Is that changing? Have you noticed? Extremadura being put on the map a little bit more in recent years or do you think it's still a part of Spain which people forget about? I think it's easily forgotten about it's very little populated and in fact one of the problems it faces is depopulation and it's just emptying out. It's one of the poorest regions of Spain if not the poorest. It sort of lives off agriculture to about 90 and a bit percent and has very little industry which is possibly also an advantage in some ways because there's very little development um, industrially or and therefore no no pollution it's out of the way it's very badly communicated i mean the trains are a joke there's sort of a whole genre of jokes that has grown up about about our trains which um, are little uh, regional things with three carriages that kind of rattle out of madrid and break down halfway and run out of gas or 
catch fire or the only way in which i think you could say that we are well connected is with our roads we do have good very good motorways but of course it's landlocked you know if you're into the sea and the coast and all of that then that this isn't for you i mean there's certain natural disadvantages that we face um, as a community those of us who are, are here have our reasons and i think you probably have to come and have a look to, to discover what those are what is it for you that makes it unique um, if you compare it to other regions of Spain? Are we talking about the landscape, the people, the climate, the food, which I'd like to talk about um, in a minute? I think what makes it unique is the sense of scale that you feel as you drive from one end Extremadura to the other. It's at Cáceres and Badajoz, which are our two provinces, are the first and second least populated regions of Spain. So that you kind of drive for ages, half an hour, an hour without seeing a single car. There's just very few people about. It's pretty empty and uh, the villages are small. Our particular part of the north is composed of about 20 villages, none of which has more than about 600 people. So that, I think that, that kind of really marks it out. It's frontier country, sort of on the verge in every sense. It feels out on a limb. You have to remember this was also where many of the conquistadores came from, the people that, yeah. that uh, risked their lives to cross the ocean and in, into the unknown. Pizarro was from, was uh, the discoverer of Peru, was from Trujillo, a beautiful historic town. That is absolutely stunning, Trujillo. I was there for the first time this year, in fact. Uh, there's a statue of him in the square there on, on horseback. It's a very fine, beautiful town. It's, it almost feels like one of those uh, Tuscan city-states, uh, palaces surrounding the square and a stone street up to the top of the castle with churches and so on. It's very attractive indeed. But then, of course, you've got um, Cortés, Hernán Cortés, the conqueror of Mexico, it's from a village called Medellín. I think these guys had never seen the sea before, many of them, but they're out on a limb. They're looking into the unknown from this rather desolate and deserted part of Spain. Yeah, I wonder if that was part of the reason why they wanted to escape. Yeah, I'm sure it was. You live very close to the Portuguese border. You could easily hop across the border. Whether you notice a marked difference if you go to the, the next village across the Portuguese border or not. And the other thing that I'm always amazed about as well is how poor, like you were saying, the rail connections are between Spain and Portugal. Um, the fact that you can't really get a direct train from Madrid to Lisbon, I don't think, without going up to the north and back down again. You must do that fairly often, pop across to Portugal. Uh, do you notice any big differences when you go to like the next village or two along into Portugal? Yes, yes, totally. It really feels completely different. Although you barely notice as you cross the border, but when you get there, it's wonderfully different. And I love Portugal. And as time goes by, I appreciate it more. I mean, I think they're a very remarkable people and culture. They are so much quieter. They, in so many ways, they're more respectful of their own heritage than the Spanish are. Just fascinating, I think. And the whole country is, is, a, is an absolute marvel. We go to a market uh, on Mondays where you still find people selling yokes for oxen, pieces of machinery, uh, <laughs> copper stills that you can actually buy there. There's a store that sells these copper stills for the stilling. Things that you just wouldn't find, I don't think, in a Spanish market of equivalent uh, size. The countries you realise have kind of lived back to back for so many years now i think there's much more contact than there ever used to be but i think the border was much harder 
by a long way than it is now and so much so that there were customs checks and people used to smuggle things over and so there was no sense of really having any contact with your close neighbours. You've mentioned Trujillo. I wanted to ask you of other places, so your favourite places in Extremadura, places that you would suggest visiting. You've mentioned the two provinces of Badajoz and Cáceres. Any places that you would suggest that you hold dear, that you try to make an effort to visit when you can? I think the south of Extremadura is is very interesting because it's like almost an extension of Andalusia, but much emptier and much more unspoiled but then you get into places like Jerez de los Caballeros which is a magnificent old town very little visited then you've got uh, Fafra which is also beautiful and it's called it's known as La Sevilla Chica the small hill you know I think that's overstating it somewhat but it is it's absolutely charming little squares with fountains whitewashed very different from the north of Extremadura which is much more solemn in a way the, the kind of this the the granite the grey granite churches and it's much more Castilian um, in a way much more somber but um, other towns would be Merida which is a magnificent uh, former capital of the Roman province of Lusitania absolutely full of fabulous Roman ruins if you're into that magnificent theatre Roman theatre which I, I heartily recommend it's an absolutely wonderful experience to sit there in the open air on a hot summer night and listen to music or, or watch some play going on down there Going back to food, and uh, I noticed in your book, A Late Dinner, which incidentally listeners features in my uh, Wedding Spain reading list, check back to hear me talk about A Late Dinner. But in A Late Dinner, you have a chapter, and the title of the chapter is Cáceres, uh, where you talk about a matanza, a slaughter of a pig, and you talk about the the products that are derived from the slaughter, and uh, embutidos. Personally, I always associate embutidos with Extremadura, but is it fair to say that it is a sort of mainstay of the local cuisine or more than in other regions? I mean, what other than embutidos, which are any kind of meat or byproduct of a pig which is stuffed into something else? <laughs> good, good definition, yes. <laughs> yeah. What other things can we find in Extremadura to eat? Yes, well, Extremadura um, has, a, I think, a very, very interesting culinary aspect. But don't come looking for fancy food or kind of complicated dishes because it's very straightforward, honest-to-goodness stuff. Don't forget, this is a kind of supremely uh, rural area um, in which people just didn't have cash. So that they, you know, they used whatever they had. And so it's resourceful. It's about using old bread to make soups and things. You know, that sort of... And migas, which is fried breadcrumbs, almost are signature dish fried crumbs with fried up in a big pan with garlic and pancetta panceta sometimes red peppers simple things that are just extremely tasty the other thing to mention it's very important is um, pimenton which is produced here the best pimenton in the world uh, pimenton de la vera pimenton uh, is like paprika it's always the word that people use to describe describe it paprika which is i think slightly misleading because that would refer to the Hungarian version, which I think I'm right in saying is inferior. This, this what is produced in, in Extremadura, is dried and ground pepper, which is dried in these sheds using smoke from the oak, holm oak, 
trees. So it's an entirely sort of artisan process. This, I think, is probably the essential flavor, certainly one of the spices that I think that is central to, to Spanish cooking, together with obviously saffron. You'll find it in an awful lot of dishes here, used almost like you might might use black pepper to add sort of flavor and sort of punch to, to dishes. For instance, in caldereta, which is our kind of regional dish, I think, more than any other, and that uses either kid or, or lamb. It's essentially a lamb stew. It was uh, a shepherd dish. They would cook it up on the move as they as they travelled with their flocks, and that would be a kind of pretty simple but extremely tasty stew of lamb with wine, white wine, uh, garlic, sometimes onion, and quite a lot of pimenton to give it a kind of good good kick. If you are out and about around the region, around Extremadura, obviously you have uh, all of your own produce right on your doorstep. But if you're out and about and you had to pick a, a village or a town and within that village or town, a restaurant, where would you choose to go and what would you order? Catholic would be my choice, uh, not only because it's um, an extraordinary place. It has probably the best reserved old town um, of this part of Spain, magnificent palaces in stone. The the old town stands on a citadel and you wander around. It's just amazing. But in that, in the middle of that old town um, is a restaurant called Atrio, which has become quite famous. And it's sort of, um, I think, um, our leading restaurant in Extremadura. It's not a kind of cheap eating place. It's it's a proper restaurant. It's got two Michelin stars, but I think anyone could, should try it at least once. What they've done very cleverly is they've, they've used, um, they, they use Extremeño products, but they've kind of made a kind of modern version of the local cuisine. So it's kind of brought up to date. There's that. But then, of course, all around Cáceres uh, are these taperias, um, which is the local word for a tapas bar. Extremadura is one of the, I think, one of the few regions of Spain where you get your tapa free with the drink. Still, I mean, I think Granada is one of the few other places I can think of. So um, a tapas crawl around Cáceres, Old Town, would certainly be among my sort of top experiences, perhaps followed by a really fabulous dinner at Atrio. That would be my choice, I think. So Atrio, a tapas, a tapas crawl followed by Atrio in Cáceres. Um, anything on the menu that you would uh, recommend from previous experience? Well, it's one of those menu degustaciones. It's a tasting menu. So I wouldn't be able to single anything out. And of course, it changes according to what's available. Uh, it's very, very much a seasonal cuisine. But it's not your kind of foams and, and high tech stuff. It's still very, very linked to the kinds of flavors that you're going to find as you travel around the region. It's done with great style and it's utterly delicious. Sounds fantastic. Well, next time I'm in Extremadura, I've written it down. I'm going to make a note and save that. Well, give me a call when you do, Paul. Absolutely, I will do. I'd love to come and visit and see your place, actually. So that was Paul Richardson. A big, big thank you to you, Paul. Um, it was really enjoyable chatting to you. Thanks for coming along to the When in Spain podcast. Also, I must mention that Paul will be leading a 10-day tour of Extremadura next May. That's May 2021 through the Martin Randall Travel Company. So if you'd like to find out more about Paul's tour of Extremadura, which he will be leading, and it covers uh, art and architecture and, of course, food and wine, then 
check out the Martin Randall Travel website, which I've dropped a link in the show notes to um, for this episode. So go and give it a look if that sounds interesting for you. You'd like to go and explore Extremadura. Anyway, just before I go, a quick reminder that When in Spain is on Instagram. Um, so please go and find When in Spain there. Please follow the account if you'd like to see videos and photography from Spain and content that relates to all the various podcast episodes. I've been posting quite a few videos on there lately and sort of getting to grips with this new IGTV, which is Instagram TV, where you can post long videos. And for those of you who are new to the When in Spain podcast, you might not know that there is a Facebook group as well, which accompanies the podcast. And don't forget, if you enjoy this podcast series, please do consider supporting it. Uh, It's an independent podcast. It's just me and my free time uh, putting it together each week. So if you do enjoy it and you'd like to see it continue, um, please consider heading across to patreon.com forward slash when in Spain to sign up and become a patron from as little as just one dollar per month and there's a sliding scale of different tiers you can sign up to for the five ten and above tiers you'll get access to when in Spain bonus content as well So with that, I will sign off. Thank you for listening. I hope you're staying well and looking after yourselves wherever you listen to this podcast show, which I looked the other day at the statistics and incidentally, um, we have listeners in 250 countries now around the world, which is quite staggering to think that there are some people in all of those countries listening to little old me talking about Spain. Um, but as always, thank you for your support and especially a big thanks to those of you who uh, interact with me via the Facebook uh, group, via Instagram, drop me comments, tell me that you're enjoying the podcast, ask questions, all of that. I really love hearing from you guys, the listeners. So uh, don't be shy and also if you see something you like or a photo or something you enjoy please do leave a comment because i'll always try to respond to it i've got a great episode lined up for next time um, i'm not going to say anything at the moment i'm going to keep it under keep it under my hat but again it's one of these transportative episodes we're going to be transporting you off to uh, a specific part of spain for something really special and really beautiful so stay tuned for that that's coming up next week here on the winning spain podcast until then i bid you hasta luego